From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seaspire, the producer of this podcast and your host for this episode. One in 12 American children, more than 5.7 million kids, have experienced parental incarceration at some point during their lives. Black Americans are 50% more likely than white Americans to have a family member who is either formerly or currently incarcerated. At the ACLU, we are working to reform the criminal legal system in order to significantly reduce its footprint in the United States. Because we know that the ramifications of incarceration are broad, complex, and damaging. Incarceration doesn't just impact the person incarcerated, but we don't often engage in that conversation. The American jail and prison system pulls apart entire families and communities, predominantly those of color. Our guest today understands all of this on a visceral level. Ashley C. Ford is a writer, podcaster, and educator who deals with topics including race, sexuality, and body image. This June, Ashley released her debut memoir called Somebody's Daughter, where she details her experience growing up with a single mom and an incarcerated dad as a black kid in Indiana. When released, Somebody's Daughter became an instant New York Times bestseller. Ashley joins us on the podcast today to talk about her book, mass incarceration, and what justice means to her from where she stands today. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Kendall. We've been really excited to get you on the podcast. Your book came out like a gust of wind and it was everywhere. (laughs) And uh, I think we were like waiting for the dust to settle a little bit so that we could have a chance at speaking to you. So we're very, all very excited about this. You write a lot and talk a lot about this disregard that adults in your life had for the children around them um, when you were growing up. And Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you were consciously aware of this lack of regard when you were a child or if you only kind of came to understand the fuller picture once you had kind of seen this alternative. I believe I was always aware of the lack of regard um, to a certain extent. It was not until I was an adult that I understood how that lack of regard continues to affect people in their lives, the way Mm -hmm. they see themselves, the way they see their relationships, and the way they see the world. We were being held to adult standards as children. And now we are the adults who hold children to adult standards and feel like, what's wrong with this generation? Something's gotta be wrong. There's so No, there's nothing wrong with these kids except for the fact that they're kids. And we are taught inherently that being a child is being a burden, that being a child is being a bother, that being a child is being a walking, talking inconvenience who we are so biologically and hormonally wrapped up in that we put up with them even when they really don't deserve it. That's what we teach kids. Yeah, I think it it seems to me that certain kids get that message more than other kids. Absolutely. And I think particularly Black children in America, I think, you know, it's more likely if you're a Black woman in America Mm -hmm. to have that experience. And then even further beyond that, 
to have this experience of having an incarcerated parent. I wonder what dynamic that added on to this kind of layer of, oh, I'm a burden mm. as a child. I mean, it absolutely adds a burden, especially when you're in the kind of family, which I was, that will tell you things like, you know, you guys need to be better. You need to be better behaved. You need to be more grown up. Mm. You need to grow up faster because your mom doesn't have help. And she doesn't have help because your dad is incarcerated. And because your dad is incarcerated, the help that your mom deserves is now yours to give. <laughs> I don't even know how to begin with how messed up that is to do to mm -hmm. a child and what a messed up situation that is to be in as an adult. You know, as I've gotten older, like, yeah, you learn more and you have more context for these memories and for, you know, your understanding of a parent. Like, I definitely think often about the fact that, man, my mom got married and had a baby. And before the year was out, she was pregnant again. Her husband was in jail and she was now a single parent with two kids, one on the way, who will be two under two at 22 years old. Wow. You know, yeah. her life flipped and changed like that. And there's something traumatic about that. And there's something terrible about that. And it can, right. it can be traumatic. It can be terrible. It can be unfair. And it can still be not the child's fault or the child's problem. But we make it the child's problem. Yeah. Having an incarcerated yeah. parent becomes the child's problem because they are now expected to prove themselves, to prove their humanity by overcoming their inhumane circumstances. It also struck me when we were talking that at the same time that there's this expectation for you to do better, right? And uh, have this like extremely high standard to not be a kid. We also criminalize certain kinds of kids, yes. right? So, yes. so that also adds to this kind of standard. I remember being sent to the office and have, being pulled from class and having to spend the whole day in the office when I was in the fifth grade because I brought a nail file to school. I have really, really, really long nails. I like, I always have. I have long nail beds. They're really strong. They grow really fast. A lot of people would love that. As a kid, I hated it. You know how hard it is yeah. to play with other kids when your nails grow super strong and super fast and people are playing tag and stuff and they're like, we don't want to play with Ashley. Yeah. She scratches people. And I'm like, I don't mean to, oh, you know? No. And so I brought this nail file to school that I got from my grandma um, so that I could mm -hmm. file down my nails and it had a little pink handle and a little metal, you know, like the grading part of the nail file. I got that confiscated and sent to the office for a whole day because they said it was a weapon and that I had brought a weapon right. to school. And they told my mom they could have kicked me out. And the only reason they didn't kick me out was because I was a kid who had really good grades. Mm. And I think about that a lot, that I, like... That could have changed. I mean, and it also helped that I was like, I was a kid with really good test scores. I was a kid who mm. was in the gifted class. I mean, even when I was in the office, the principal kept saying, you know, Ashley, I'm really disappointed in you. You're one of our gifted kids. We chose you mm. as one of our gifted kids. 
And I just mm-hmm. kept thinking, why am I being treated like I did something on purpose when I brought a nail file to school? Like, why is right. that? Why is this becoming such a thing? You know, my mom had told us when we were kids not to tell anybody that our dad was in prison. You know, mm-hmm. don't tell people that because they will treat you worse. They will be mean to you because of it. They'll lose faith in you because of it. Mm. They won't try to help you because of it. And she wasn't always wrong. She wasn't as right, yeah. you know, as she thought she was. She thought that would be 100% absolutely everybody, and that's not true. But she also wasn't 100% wrong. So in light of that, was this book your message to your younger self? Yeah, yes. People keep asking okay. me who I wrote this book for, and I keep telling them me. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I wrote it for me. Like that's who I wrote it for. I'm so glad that other people will see themselves in it and that they'll be able to get something from it that's useful. But I wrote it for me. I wrote it like the child version of me was a kid who lived across the street and asked me to write them a book. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And asked me to tell their story and what they had been through. And would you please write this down for me so that people care about it? And that's what I did my best to do because that part of me, that little girl, that neighbor girl across the street was terrified that her story didn't matter, that she didn't matter, Mm -hmm. even though she truly in her heart and in her gut believed that she did. Yeah, absolutely. You talk about this kind of this level of worthiness. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when people are thinking about your story and they think, oh, well, she has an incarcerated parent, maybe that's where her level of unworthiness is coming from. Mm -hmm. But in reading the book, your relationship with your father from a very young age, whether it was through seeing each other or writing letters, it actually seemed to me that he he was very affirming of your worth. I wonder how your relationship with your father in whether it was in the actual reality of your relationship or mm-hmm. in what you were able to conjure up for yourself right. of your relationship if that counteracted any of that for you growing up. Yeah, it absolutely did. I mean it it was the thing I used to counteract it in my mind when I was a kid. You know, because it was always this thing that if nobody else wanted to be around me or see me in the entire world, I knew that if I could get to my dad, it would make his year. You know what I mean? Like if Mm -hmm. I, if anybody else showed up in that room, he would be happy. But if I, or my brother, if one of us showed up in that visiting room, that was, I knew that we were the people he wanted to see most out of everybody in the entire world. And there is power in knowing that you mean that much to somebody. And my dad would write me these letters like, you know, I already know who you are and, you know, in a certain sense. And that couldn't be true, but it felt nice that somebody even wanted to know who I was and would say Mm -hmm. things like, I can't wait to just get the chance to sit and talk with you. You know, I tried to create that moment with my mom so many times where I wanted to just Mm -hmm. sit and talk with her or I wanted to hang out with her. I wanted this, I wanted this reassurance that she liked me. 
So my relationship with my dad, mostly a fantasy, mostly an affirming, loving fantasy. My relationship with my mom was in cold, hard reality, but it was, you know, scarred by the undealt with trauma that made up the foundation of our past, that made up the foundation, honestly, of our introduction into each other's lives. In the way you talk about your mom, you share a lot of the hard exchanges, right. a lot of the hard parts of your relationship. But you also write about her in this way of understanding a lot of her circumstance. I read that she was under, obviously, a lot of economic stress making trying to support a family on less than forty thousand dollars a year she was a corrections officer at a local county jail in a lot of ways the instability that she had experienced as a result of incarceration probably from what you conveyed had a huge impact on how you grew up like how she raised you and i wonder you know looking at this also from a perspective of having a mom that was a little bit intertwined in the criminal legal system (laughs) and a dad that was incarcerated. How do you think about that all today? You know, the family I grew up in was made up of people who worked in and for the government and people who had a lot of run-ins with the state. So... Mm -hmm. I grew up with it always being, you know, both sides of the law situation. Like I had my friends who did not mess with cops, was trying to stay away from cops because they were doing their thing and it wasn't 100% legal and, you know, all of that. And then I had cousins and aunts and uncles and stuff who were literal police officers. You know, my, my mom... My mother worked at um, the sheriff's department with her best friend since she was 13. And I think two of my aunts at different given times. One of my aunts was a captain um, in there. My my uncle is a, has been a police officer since I was seven and is like, was a member of the SWAT team. He's a detective now. You know, like that's part of my family. The other part of my family Mm -hmm. is doing other kinds of things. So you just, when you grow up like that, it's really easy to see stuff like, yeah, like this person works at the, you know, jail or works at the prison or whatever, but they're not better people (laughs) than the ones who are doing other things. Things like they're just, I can tell that society receives them differently, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But knowing them on a personal level, one of them is not a better person than the other. In fact, they hang out a lot, they just don't talk about those things when they hang out. Mm. But they're at all the same barbecues, they're at all the same cookouts, they're at all the same get togethers, all the same holiday family meals. They play cards right next to each other. They play dominoes right next to each other. It's it's not that different, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's still, that's something that began, you know, this view that I have of humanity and of people 
that, you know, even my family members who worked in law enforcement never demonized people who had committed crimes. I want to touch on this kind of underlying philosophy mm-hmm. of, of crime deserving punishment. Oh, yeah. This philosophy seems to undergird how we think about actions that are even not crimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you were telling the story about bringing a nail file to school, not a crime, still got like a punishment. Yeah. Is this idea of appearing as wrongdoing is already just kind of worthy of punishment and that punishment was like, very important kind of throughout your life experience. Mm -hmm. And one of the stories that you tell in the book is about an experience with a teacher who called your mom accusing you of saying something that you didn't say. And then the, in knowing in her mind that you would then, I guess, be punished by your mom. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that experience. She was quick to call. She called. Um, I suffered the consequences of that call, even though I had not done what she said I did. Right. And I confronted her about it. Even the first grade, I was like, "What? how did you get here? What? How did this happen mm-hmm. to me? You know, and it was it was this thing where I realized that, like, people wield punishment according to their own definition of what is an appropriate punishment without considering the reality or the reaction of the people who they seek to punish. And people are really comfortable punishing people who they're not sure are guilty. That is something that I have learned and that I continue to kind of freak out about in my life is how is this the case? Like, how does this continue to happen that people are this comfortable punishing others who they do not recognize as guilty, but who they suspect could be. And what they're actually terrified of is that they'll get away with it. Why are we more Mm. terrified that somebody will get away with something than that we will punish someone unduly? I I don't understand how we think those stakes are so different. I want to dig in a little bit more to what your experiences, what your experience with that teacher, what your experience with your mom mm. and your experience having an incarcerated parent has like, how has that shaped your view on this idea of punishment and retribution for something that went wrong and and what what isn't working in that dynamic? I mean, it's it's forced me to clarify my definition for things like justice, mm. for things like accountability, all of that. Like, you have to clarify your definition of what those things really mean because reality complicates the more general, easier definitions of those concepts and themes and ideas. And I just never had the luxury of believing in those things for decades in a way that excluded reality. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't really have time to fully build the delusion (laughs) because so much of, right. Because so much of reality was already like present in my life. Mm -hmm. But I will say that as I've gotten older, what I've learned is that at times I tried to change my definition to other people's definition, or I tried to take on their definitions of justice or accountability so that, you know, I didn't have to, I guess, 
fight for my opinions and mm. fight for my ideas of the way I saw things. And all of that kind of changed after my grandma died. I like to say that when my grandma died, I inherited her lack of fucks somehow. Um, but it really did. Like, that's when it started to change. That's when I started to realize that, like, no, I can love people and want to see them held accountable for their mm-hmm. actions. Yeah. Like, those two things don't have to exist separately. Right. And also, I can see people being held accountable for their actions and still have love for them. Right. And still feel their humanity, even in the midst of their mistakes and their pain and their regret. I guess, like, essentially what happened is I had to make a decision of, like, do I want to live in my head in a place where theories rule? Or do I want to live in reality and test some theories and see what happens? Mm -hmm. And I prefer reality. And reality has shown me that like the way we go about blaming people, the way we go about punishing people, the way we are so comfortable calling for accountability for everybody but ourselves in a lot of situations. um, I'm not okay with that. I'm not cool with that. Mm-hmm. And it's like a lot of people sometimes it's like, you got to understand you might have really good values and even better politics, but how you show up, how those good values and good politics manifest in your actions um, still counts. <laughs> you, you can't hide behind good intention forever. You can't hide behind good politics forever. Right. At some point you have to bow to the truth of your humanity which is that we are all flawed and we're all connected and you can blame people all you want. At the end of the day, they matter. And what happens to them is going to matter in your life too, whether you want it to or not. I think that is a very important point. And I think a lot of what people are doing these days is deconstructing perhaps what you already knew based on your lived experience, Mm -hmm. right? We're deconstructing Mm -hmm. what is justice? What is a a criminal justice system really for? Um, What are other models of accountability? Is this really the right way? And one of the things Mm -hmm. that I wanted to discuss with you, oftentimes when we're met with these kind of ideas of divestment from the police and reinvestment, or Mm -hmm. even as far as abolition, there's the Mm -hmm. uh, kind of knee-jerk reaction of, well, what do we do with the rapists and the murderers? That's the question that people pose. And In December of 2020, we interviewed poet and activist Kamon Felix um, Uh, about her experience. I love Kamon. We love Kamon. No, no, we (laughs) love Kamon. It was one of the most impactful conversations that I think we've had on the the podcast. But we talked about her experience with incarceration and... Uh, her experience with sexual violence and mm-hmm. you know her cousin was the one who abused her he ended up in prison for actually something totally different but she thought that her telling about her experience and what had been done to her by her cousin was the thing that ended landed him in prison and carried that for yeah. for a very long time and she you know would say that the the system did nothing to heal her wounds. It did nothing to provide restoration for what had happened. And um, knowing your circumstance with being a survivor of sexual violence, I wonder if that 
rings true for you mm. too. I mean, I never attempted to, until I was an adult, really tell anybody what had happened to me about being sexually assaulted. And I don't necessarily regret that. I regret the way it made me feel the Mm -hmm. shame that was allowed to fester in the dark because I didn't want to bring that particular experience, um, the secret of that experience into the light. But I'm going to be honest and say that, you know, since then I've had other situations where I have been assaulted or attempted to be assaulted in some way. And to be perfectly honest, nothing, I've gone to the police and I've not gone to police. And it was more traumatic both times to go to the police than it was Mm -hmm. not to go to the police. And the trauma comes from the way you're spoken to, the things that you're asked, the things that you're asked to remember knowing that if you can't remember things accurately or as well in the moment, that that could be used against you in the future if this becomes, like, absolutely, like, it it offered me no comfort. Mm -hmm. And I think if you ask a lot of people about when it comes to who have been assaulted or who have had family members who, or loved ones who were the victim of murder, it is not the state that puts you at ease. It's not the state that mm-hmm. helps you heal. It's rarely even the state that brings any sort of justice or accountability into the forest. So right. what is the point? So I've never had any real delusions about that system working on my behalf, even as members of my family work within that system. Mm-hmm. We Even then, we knew it wasn't for us you know, to thrive. Yeah. So yeah, like, I I mean, how many rapes get solved? (laughs) How many rapes lead to conviction? How many, how many like accusations of murder lead to conviction? Like it's, it's just, these numbers are not as high as we think they are that we perceive them as. It's like, this is not law and order. Right. They're not catching the bad guy 99.8% of the time. time. That's not what's happening. How do you relate this to also then experiencing your dad being held in the system? Was that accountability? I mean, not really. I mean, it was accountability according to the state. It was accountability in that, like, because my dad did that time, spent that time, you know, he has he has paid his debt to society, you know. But do his victims feel like that was the accountability they wanted or needed? I don't know. Right. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. That's not for me to say, because I am not the victim of that part of his choice. For sure. You know what I mean? I'm victim of a parts of his choice, the indirect effects of his choice, but that direct harm is not mine, you know? So it's one of those things where it's like, do I think my dad has been punished enough for what he did to me? Sure. But this isn't, if I had gotten any choice in it, this, is, this isn't how I would have punished my dad for mm-hmm. what he did to me. This isn't what accountability would have looked like to me or for me because 
even in these circumstances, this is the problem with a lot of like incarceration and punishment and stuff like that. I still needed him more than he needed me. You were punished. Absolutely. It's not, I mean, I mean, directly and indirect, like your dad is, he made a decision and now he's gone. Mm -hmm. Your mom, your young mother Mm -hmm. is on her own. And that is your sole source of support for the next 17 years. This is your pretty much like, this is your parent and she's 22 and that's what you've got. And that's what you've been left with. There will be no help from the state. There will be no help from the community that is not your mother's related, directly biological community because your mom finding herself in this circumstance is already demonized. She's already a young Black woman with two kids married to some guy who's in jail. And mm, Didn't she just make all the wrong choices in life? Doesn't she deserve to suffer so that she learns to work harder and never make the same mistakes again? And the thing is, is who was going to give her a second chance to get it right? Who was going to give her a second chance to do right by her children in the absence of their father who was gone by, yes, his own choice, but by no choice of hers? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's going to happen to this mother? Nobody cares. Nobody cared then. Nobody really cares now because it's still happening every day. And you still, it's not like you see like an abundance of programs and organizations targeted towards the children of the incarcerated. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think that's why your story at this, at at this exact time in, in a lot of ways is very resonant because we are having these kind of deconstructing conversations. People are rethinking a better system and to to really not just think about policing, but think about what happens when someone is in prison, what happens to their family. Those are, we have to pull at this from all different sides. So you open the book with finding out that your father is going to be released. Mm-hmm. And then you end the book with that reality. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that experience but also where you're at now yeah um you know the experience of seeing my dad when he got out of prison is one of the highlight experiences of my life he didn't know I was going to be there and it, it 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 was just a moment realized a dream realized because you know the thing about whether or not he would come home is that that was always a question you know, it was never like, when is he going to come home? Right. You know, it was if he comes home. And so there was already this miracle in the fact that he had survived prison for 30 years and come home. And then, you know, on top of that, there was the miracle that like, it was pretty easy to hang out with him. Like, I didn't know if that was going to be the case. I didn't know if maybe, like, after everything, I would be like, it is really hard for me to be around this person, and I can't do it. It doesn't feel good to me. And that just wasn't true. 
Mm-hmm. Turns out that wasn't true. Um, it actually feels great to be around my dad and to be able to get to know him and to talk with him. We had breakfast together alone for the first time um, two weeks ago, about. Wow. And it was this lovely time of like breakfast and then going for a walk in the park and these things I used to literally dream about as a kid that I would try to make happen in my mind, the things that I thought would save my life if they happened for me at the right time mm-hmm. are happening, but without that kind of pressure. You know, I don't need my dad to save me anymore. There's this beautiful, you know, in all of the tragedy of missing 30 years of our relationship together, there's this beautiful reality that I get to know my dad as a friend. Like that's how we get to know each other is that we get to build a friendship with each other. And there is something weirdly awesome and beautiful about that as well. It's completely different to be fully known as an adult Mm. woman. Like I don't, I don't worry about my dad treating me like a kid, you know, like, I mean, he's a dad, so he definitely has his, you know, well, be safe and, you know, all that stuff, but, but he doesn't treat me like a kid and I don't have to battle that in him. You know, he sees me as I am. He accepts me as I am. Mm -hmm. And that's really the most I could ask for. That's what I wanted most of all. You know, when I thought about the dream of what it would be like when my dad came home, it would be that he would see me and he would love me. And that is my reality. He sees me and he loves me. I think that's amazing. And you deserved it so long ago. Um, I wanted I want to know how that how that feels. I mean, to to have that. And then to have this book and to have it be so well received. I mean, what does it feel like to be you right now? It feels great. I mean, it's not always easy. And it is not always um, what I expected. Mm -hmm. But if I am being perfectly honest, I am so happy with my life right now. I'm so happy with how it's turned out in terms of my work. I'm happy with how it's turned out in terms of my relationships and the people who are in my life. I am treating myself better than I ever have in my entire life. And all of that adds up. You know, you keep putting that investment into the bank, that investment into you. And at some point, you're going to see returns, whether mm-hmm. you expect it, whether it's exactly what you expect. It doesn't matter. It's just, it's going to come back. You know, just building that self-trust that I was missing um, is really what helped me get to this point. You know, like, because it's not, the book has done really well and it makes me so happy. But the minute I was done with that book and I held it in my hands, I was proud of myself. So people get hurt, people die, people need me, things happen. But at the end of the day, I go to bed happy that I'm who I am. And I can't imagine anything better than that. 
I can't either, really. We know that having an incarcerated parent or a family member can often be feel like a very isolating experience, even though we know that it happens and it happens more often than everyone thinks. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to give you the chance to send a message to anyone who might be facing this situation with an incarcerated loved one currently yeah. and, and maybe specifically to kids. I would say this. I would say that loving a person who has done a bad thing does not make you bad. When someone's being held accountable for doing something that is considered criminal or that is considered wrong, that is a process that has to do with them and a whole lot of laws and a whole lot of systems that are outside of your control. You can't wish it away. You can't want it bad enough to go away. That's not how it works. What's Mm going to happen is going to happen. And you might be affected by it. It might even hurt you. But that doesn't mean that your love is wrong. And that doesn't mean that the love someone has for you is wrong. Hold on to love even when it hurts, but don't ever, 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 ever love someone else or love an idea outside of yourself so much that it takes away the love that you have for you. You are number one. Most of your love goes to you, but there is never anything wrong with deciding to share it. Oh, Ashley, that was so lovely. Thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I think it was so meaningful on so many levels. We really, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. This was a good time. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode about Liberty, please subscribe and rate and review our show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.